welcome to Taiwan Talk. I'm your host, Alex Lewis. On the show this week, we speak to Taipei Times reporter Han Chung about his weekly article, Taiwan in Time. Taiwan in Time is a column about Taiwan's history that is published every Sunday, and it spotlights important or interesting events around the nation that have anniversaries that week. You may be familiar with his articles on the Taipei Times, or you may have heard him on this podcast before with my predecessor, Keith Minconi. But let's get to know Han a little bit better anyway before we delve into Taiwan in Time. So I'm actually, I'm a features reporter for the Taipei Times, so uh, we're all encouraged to come up with a column. And since uh, I was doing history when I was uh, editor for a small town paper in Wyoming, so I decided to keep doing that. And uh, so I had a book in Wyoming that came out on based on the small town history, so it just started really randomly. We were like, come up with a column. I'm like, oh, I'll do history because I'm friends with the people at the museum and they can help me out. And then it kind of turned into my specialty with the book coming out. And then when I came back to Taiwan, I really didn't think that much. I was just like, I'll, I'll just keep doing it. And then I realized how history in Taiwan is a really, is, it's really different from Wyoming because, you know, like silence and like a lot of people don't know about a lot of important events that happened. I thought it was just because, you know, I haven't lived in Taiwan for the past 15 years, so I don't know about this stuff, but I was talking to my Taiwanese friends, and they didn't know about a lot of the stuff I was looking at. So that put, like, a whole new, like, mission and perspective to to my work. So I've been actually writing this column, plan on it being a one-year thing, but it's over three years now, and I'm still finding interesting things to write about. So, wow. Yeah. You, you pick yeah. a day in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because since, since it's a weekly, it comes out every Sunday, so I just write about things that happen that week. So starting... So if it comes out on a Sunday, it'll be about things that happen Monday the day. next Monday to the next Sunday. I see. And okay. there is just so much to write about. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, it is my understanding that you're coming out with a book as well, right? Yeah, because uh, there really isn't a comprehensive English... Uh, Taiwanese history that's kind of like popular reading like a lot of most of the stuff is academic so I, I'm trying to come up with something that's fun and easy to read and gives foreigners like a quick un, uh, general under but like enjoyable understanding of uh, Taiwanese history okay, that's really cool uh, when is that gonna come out what um, does that do is it still fluid or yeah it's still kind of fluid so okay like maybe in the near future let's say like next year or so okay. so we welcome han on the show to talk about the four articles that he wrote for the month of august a couple of the articles were very timely in nature and we'll start with one such piece titled deadly waters and their legends so this piece covers august 6th to august 12th in history and talks about the floods that occurred in 1898 and 1959 that caused widespread destruction mostly to the country central and southern areas. This is timely because Taiwan just went through torrential rains in central and southern Taiwan during August. The rains wreaked havoc, but tales of destruction during heavy rains and flooding are commonplace. They kind of go hand in hand. So instead, Han focused on the peripheral stories and uncovered some intriguing folklore. So what was like your biggest takeaway from from writing this uh, piece? Um, so I didn't want to focus that much on death and destruction. So I kind of looked at the interesting things, and I found that the first two floods actually had some legends tied to it. So it's like the myths that come out of you know destruction, or maybe it's not a myth because 
Uh, some people get mad at me if I said that because the, the the people who propagated him still maintain that it's true. So um, basically, uh, there was one account that you know the Taiwanese night market snack of Bawan hmm. was created because of the flood, and because like all the the firewood everything was like drenched, so they couldn't really cook, and um, and it, it happened to be Ghost Month, so they used to like make these glutinous rice balls to like uh worship the de- like appease the hungry ghosts and things like that and they couldn't do any of that so uh actually this guy um his he was like a spirit medium for this um temple and he actually the deity possessed him and gave him a recipe to create this kind of like uh kind of like pastry thing that was that was that could be easily made and they actually made that and then started like using that to you know like perform rituals and feed the hungry and then that recipe kept being you know like refined and until it's the bawan we know of today and this guy's great grandson still runs a bawan shop in Zhanghua and he is the one who maintains that the story is true and the newspapers still report on that every now and then and is that normal for you to do uh when it comes to uh writing a, a taiwan in time piece you want to look for something that's out of the ordinary or off the beaten path um yeah it depends on what i find like i go into it just wanting to write about the floods but uh so i actually had to rewrite this piece because i found out about the bawan and the other uh, other legends that came up from the other flood and then i was like well, actually, there's this element to it that I, I had no idea. So it's a learning process for me, too. And uh, But sometimes my whole story can change. So in the middle, I had to restructure the whole thing because of my new discoveries. For the week of August 13th to August 19th, Han wrote a piece titled Fractured Resistance. The piece covers the flourishing of Taiwanese culture and political activism in the 1920s against Japan, and then the subsequent factionalism that led to several ugly splits. The fault lines in the resistance were mainly created by ideological differences. The leaders of the resistance were mostly wealthy intellectuals. When less well-heeled compatriots began espousing Marxist maxims that ran counter to their ideals, or self-interest at least, their united front collapsed the next one was about uh fractured resistance so it's basically about the taiwanese kind of anti-japanese resistance in the 1920s this was passive resistance the violent resistance had all been stamped out by like the 19 1915 or somewhere around there as far as the han chinese population the aboriginals were still resisting but basically they had turned to like cultural resistance so it's like gaining autonomy promoting like a taiwanese consciousness and basically they want their they wanted a like a taiwanese assembly and like a self-rule and they actually went to japan to tokyo and like petitioned like multiple times so they gave up fighting but they still wanted self-rule and like things like that and these are all like pretty wealthy intellectuals that were that were doing this and uh, but they just couldn't really cooperate. So they they had a whole history of like arguing and then splitting and then arguing and splitting. And the big part of it was a lot of them studied in Japan and like Marxism and leftist ideals were a big thing there. 
So that that led to like a lot of like disagreements between the people and uh, the activists because um, most of the leaders were actually wealthy intellectuals, and that was what leftism is like. Not really yeah. going for. Not really going for. So uh, so that led to a lot of splits. So my article just describes like how. You know, they formed the Taiwan People's Party, but then that split, and then that, that kept splitting, and et cetera, that. et cetera. Yeah, because some people, the, the rich people, just wanted to focus solely on getting self government, uh, self government ship. But the other, like Zhang Weishui, he's he's like a really probably the father of like you know like Taiwanese nationalism. But he was really big on like you know workers' rights, farmers' rights, and things like that, and uh, they wanted, but. Um, yeah, but class struggle would would have and did like break apart these parties, and then eventually they all got stamped out. And ironically, the Japanese government actually went after communists first, so all the leftist ones got stamped out. And then there was only one party left in the end, the Taiwan Local Autonomy Alliance, and they managed to survive just because they were not leftist. But then after Japan, like launched their full-scale invasion of china they were like okay this is things are probably like we're probably not going to get what we want and it's probably dangerous to continue and so they disbanded themselves and that was the end of it and then world war ii began so there was no more room for such activities really let's proceed to august 20th to august 26th in the piece titled a dark day for taiwanese diplomacy han gives light to the story of taiwan being banned from the 1962 asian games hosted in indonesia and Taiwan's severance of official diplomatic ties with South Korea in 1992, both events happening on August 24th. Both of these issues are still relevant and, you could say, ongoing today. Let's take a look at the current state of sports from an international perspective. Taiwan lost its rights to host the East Asian Games. Citizens of Taiwan are pushing for a referendum to participate in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics under the name Taiwan instead of Chinese Taipei. And on a good note, Taiwan participated in the 2018 Asian Games that were held in Indonesia 56 years after Taiwan was banned comes full circle. And looking at Taiwan's diplomatic relations, the island is down to 17 allies after the severance of ties with El Salvador. And then the second part of this article was talking about 1992, uh, the breaking of ties with longtime ally South Korea. Yeah, yeah. So August 24th, um, yeah, we lost Korea. And and that's also relevant because we're losing allies at an alarming rate. We're down to 17 right now. Yeah, so, but back then... Um, it was interesting because I was looking at there was this book uh, by Rick Chu about uh, called like Goodbye Arilang. So it was just talking about Taiwan-Korean relations and how the whole thing happened. And he was kind of saying he was asking the same questions. He was like, "What happens if we lose all our allies?" And that book was published in 1993, and we're still asking the same questions now. And the government just announced last week that it has a no zero ally plan but we don't know what it is so we're still asking the same questions we did like 30 something years ago (laughs) and uh what was also interesting was like how mad people were back then and now it's just like a matter of fact kind of thing (laughs) like people were like burning the korean flag and like surrounding the korean embassy they did that when like the u.s broke ties with taiwan but like yeah now it just seems like oh oh no like yeah sort of like acceptance of fate it seems it kind of is and it's kind of like south korea just like 
suddenly breaking ties and it was like a really important allies the two were brothers in arms you know like because it was taiwan and china and then it was like south korea and north korea and they were like the two uh part of the asian tigers so they they enjoyed like really strong ties and um so it, it came as more of a shock and then these like little countries leaving you know for for China. China. Yeah. Han's last article for August looked at August 27th through September 2nd. The piece is titled The Puppet Master Heads West, a piece about Li Tianlu. This is actually my second article on puppetry. The first one was about Huang Hai Dai. Just couldn't get enough. Um, yeah. But uh, basically, Li Tianlu and Huang Hai Dai are the two, you know, like main, main puppet masters. So this guy, I focused on this guy because it was really interesting because he, uh, he likes to say his life began after he turned 70. And this is from a guy who had been performing since he was eight years old and traveling. And then he suffered through, you know, like the Japanese band, uh, everything Taiwanese. So he had to perform Japanese puppet shows for a while and then... Um, it kind of went up and down. He, he like flourished after the KMT came, and then it's just in the seventies, people just started losing interest in the traditional arts, and so he was planning on retiring. He was he turned sixty eight, and That's by this time he had only been to China and Hong Kong, and he doesn't count China as leaving the country because it was nineteen forty seven and the KMT ruled both. Taiwan and China. So, anyways, so he he considered like he left the country for the first time to perform in Hong Kong, and when he was 68 years old, and he came back, he was like, "I'm going to retire." And then suddenly, this uh, he he likes to say like one Frenchman turned it all around. So basically, this French scholar who um, was teaching French in Hong Kong, he developed this really intense interest in like puppetry, and he came to Taiwan to do field work, and he chose Li Tianlu because. He had kind of stayed, tradi- uh, stayed true to the traditional art form while the other ones were, like, sp- experimenting with pop music and, you know, like, special effects and, like, thing- things like that. And they really hit it off. And the guy was like, well, can I send some of my students to study with you? And he's like, sure. So um, then when the next year, like, three French people came from Paris to study with him and then... And through word of mouth, he started taking on more and more foreign students. And that was interesting because, like, people actually cl- criticized him. They were like, why are you teaching these foreigners? He's like, well, the Taiwanese don't want to learn. They're not interested in this anymore. So I'll teach whoever who wants to learn. And uh, that, that was actually a really interesting part of the article for me, like reading about how people in Taiwan really didn't care until it came back around, right? So he started yeah. from him, went to France or Europe, and then came back to China. Yeah, and then uh, oh, yeah, once it came back the, to China, like people right. from Taiwan really really took note about you know puppetry and about um, uh, Li Xianlu. Yeah, yeah. So he was a stubborn man. He went ahead with his plans and retired anyways. But he kept teaching these foreigners, and they actually went back to Paris and formed their own puppet troupe. And then they started touring. They actually toured China. So, and these things were not no longer so like you know like. A lot of Chinese culture is actually preserved better in Taiwan because we didn't go through the Cultural Revolution. So, basically, um, these puppet, the French puppet troupe visited Chenzhou, where a lot of um, 
where that's where a lot of uh, if that's in Fujian, where a lot of the Taiwanese originally immigrated from, like uh, three or four hundred years ago. Yeah. So there's a lot of cultural similarities, and uh, um, so they were performing there, and then this guy recognized a puppet that they were using, which had been given to the French guys by Li Tianlu, and Li Tianlu didn't really know where it came from, but that guy was like, my father made that. And that guy was a really old man by then, and he was like had tears in his eyes, and then that turned into, and then that attracted all the reporters. It's like, right, yeah. yeah, French people bringing um, this puppet from Taiwan back to China, and then found the connection. Yeah. And then these people had lost all of their puppets due to the Cultural Revolution, so they were so moved to see that. And then their next stop after China was Taiwan. So this became like national news. So it was like, well, these Li Tianlu taught these French people who formed their own troupe in Paris, and then brought puppetry back to China, and then found that their lost art was preserved in Taiwan. So it became a really amazing story. And then at this point, like Taiwanese interest in like puppetry really it kind of revived. It, didn't really like really take off again but like Li Tianlu says in his memoir that it gave puppetry a second life yeah Yeah, it really sounds like it it's like so cool it's just like um, just chance happened like you know a chance meeting with this Frenchman and then a chance meeting with uh, this one guy that recognized his father's puppet right and of all the places in China they could have gone to they they went to that one village in Quanzhou and (laughs) And then it happened yeah and actually I I looked it up Uh, France has a history of puppetry uh they love puppetry and they have uh, like puppets and stuff just all around uh, i guess france i wouldn't say all around but you know like they're like puppet like stations and stuff and they still have puppet shows and everything um it's really interesting that that these two countries france and taiwan generally collaborate other than like through you know cultural means right like through puppetry yeah yeah that was really interesting connection and then that kind of led to like li tian who's like lifetime connection with france like before he died he visited like seven or eight times and uh and he actually started touring the world after that because like the first time he retired uh, they his students just invited him to go chill in france so he did that for a month he put on some like private performances but that actually got the attention of the french french ministry of culture so they started inviting him every year to go teach workshops there and that turned into this huge uh he just started this really big international demand for this guy so he went to the u.s he went to morocco italy um south korea japan like everywhere so the last 20 years of his life was touring the world basically so um that's why he says his life didn't begin until he turned 70 and and um and a portion of his ashes are buried in france so it, it kind of became his like permanent second home a big big thank you to han for meeting me for the interview if you'd like to read his articles you can find them on the taipei times website just search for taiwan in time always interesting and always informative and that's this week's edition of taiwan talk please check out our past episodes on the icrt website or on itunes or you can just google taiwan talk and if you want a podcast about local current events check out taiwan this week that happens every friday thanks for listening i'm alex lewis Thank you.